0: Okay, welcome to the November Extra issue of the Jodcast. And just before we get things started, I've got a quick question for you. If the entire land area of the Earth were divided equally among all its inhabitants, approximately how much area would everyone get each? And just as a step on from this, if the entire arable land area of the Earth was to be divided in the same way, then how much would we each get? The answers, as always, after this. The Juddcast. Self-deprecatingly British. With David Alt, Stuart Lowe, Tim O'Brien and Nick Rattenbury. The Juddcast. November Extra Edition. Hello and welcome to the November Extra Edition of the Jodcast. As ever, Stuart, Nick and I are here to guide you through this month's issue. Hi, guys. Hi, Dave. Hello, Dave. Uh, Right, so on this issue of the Jodcast, we've got an interview with Professor Don Burnett about the Genesis programme. We've got Ask an Astronomer. But first, let's have a look at some of the feedback we've been getting from the website. First up, we have Michael Booth, listening all the way down in Tasmania. He
1: has a great view of the night sky and was making us very jealous with his reports of what he was seeing on a recent observing session. Yes, clear skies. That's a lot better than we get around here. We've, uh, have
0: you been able to see Comet
2: Holmes? Yes, I saw it once. Right, I, I still haven't, because every time it's been cloudy. Every no, time no, I, no, tried I managed to, to see it on a, on a lovely, clear night in Cambridge. It was wonderful.
0: Well, spare a thought for those of us down here in London, when we don't get any sort of starry skies at all, yeah, can you see magnitude 3 objects in London? Yeah. <laughs> As if. Yes, they're called
2: streetlights. So.
1: Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, yeah, my Michael's been been able to observe some of the objects that Ian talks about in the night sky because we we do realize that we're slightly northern hemisphere biased. So we're going to, in future, try to include a few more Southern Hemisphere objects that people will be able to see as well, if you're in Australia, New Zealand, South Africa, or South America.
2: Anywhere in the Southern Hemisphere, do send us, like Michael has done, uh, what you've been looking at in the southern skies. Fantastic report of what he's seen, talking about Orion, the Pleiades, the Hyades, and all sorts of other fantastic things, especially the Magellanic Clouds and
0: the uh, Tarantula Nebula. And, of course, if you have any pictures of what you're seeing, then do send those along as well, and we'll put those up on the website for everyone to look at. Yes, indeed. We'll give you
2: full credit and all the rest of it, and people can see your efforts in astrophotography. And they don't have to be spectacular, brilliant publication quality at all. Just get out there, take a photograph, and let us see what you're seeing. We have more feedback from Ronald Larson, and he writes, Folks, I think you have the best astronomy podcast currently running. He really likes what we're doing. Thank you very much, Ronald, for sending us your feedback. And we love hearing appreciative feedback like that. And anybody else out there who thinks we're doing a good job, please do let us know how we're doing. And also, if there's anything that you don't like what we're doing or think we can do better, do drop us a line and tell us your thoughts.
1: And quite a lot of people have have done that last month anyway by filling in the Jodcast survey, which has now closed. Um, So thank you very much to all the people who filled that in. A few minutes before we started recording this, we got Professor Ian Brown to draw a winner from... It was actually a cardboard box. It wasn't a hat. It wasn't a hat? No, a it wasn't a hat. It was a cardboard box. We drew a winner, and we've contacted that winner, and we will be sending them the pair of 10x50 binoculars. So thank you very
2: much to everybody who did take part in the survey. Your responses are extremely useful to us in making the Jodcast better and better and better. We are now going through reading them all and finding out
0: exactly what suggestions you have for us. Well, let's move from picking email addresses out of a cardboard box to talking about picking up the stuff of stars from interstellar space.
2: Nick? Yes, uh, recently I spoke with Professor Don Burnett about the Genesis mission. The Genesis mission was a space probe designed to go out into space and collect bits of the solar nebula. That's that big cloud of gas and dust from which our solar system formed. The catch was the probe was then returned to Earth, and we were actually able to look at these bits of the solar nebula directly.
1: And that came back in September 2004, I think.
2: Yes, indeed. And it didn't return uh, completely as planned. It was planned to return to Earth uh, by a parachute. So it would re-enter the Earth's atmosphere and then deploy a parachute, and then it would be picked up in a fantastic operation by a helicopter capturing it in midair and then whisking it away for These analysis. were Hollywood stunt pilots, weren't they? Who were... I think they literally were Hollywood stunt pilots, yes. So they, these, these guys would have made for a spectacular um, retrieval of a space probe. However, unfor- unfortunately, uh, as we understand it, the parachute failed to deploy, and the Genesis probe crashed. However, as Professor Don Bennett tells in his interview, we were able to recover almost all of the information complete all of the mission goals, despite the fact that the Genesis probe crashed. Here is Professor Don Burnett starting to talk about the solar nebula.
3: The sun had a disk like this. That's what we refer to as a solar nebula, which is a disk of gas and dust particles intermixed together. And as the sun formed, some of the material in this disk that was left behind towards the final stages actually ended up Uh, forming all the planetary objects that we have today. And the most remarkable thing that we found about studying the solar system in the last 20 or 30 years is that the various bodies in the solar system, the planets, the moons, the asteroids, they're all different. Every, Every one of them appears to be different. And so we've ended up with a solar system of a lot of diverse materials and objects out of a solar nebula that is generally believed to be, have been fairly uniform in terms of what it was made of. And in other words, the, when I say what it's made of, I mean the relative amounts of one element to another, to iron, to magnesium, to oxygen, to something like that. And then looking in a little detail, in a little more detail, at the relative amounts of different isotopes of different elements. The nitrogen that all of us are breathing in this mixture minute is a mixture of two different kinds of nitrogen atoms. One's heavier than the other, which we refer to as nitrogen-15, as opposed to the lighter one being nitrogen-14. And the proportion of nitrogen-15 and nitrogen-14 in various solar system materials is different. It's from direct observation. The Earth's atmosphere has one value, which we take sort of as a reference, and we sort of think of anything else relative to that. Um, but many meteoritic materials have a lot more nitrogen-15 in relative to nitrogen-14 than what we have in the Earth's atmosphere.
2: So we presume that from uh, a solar nebula, which we presume to be made of exactly the same sort of stuff and the solar system and the sun included, was created from the same uh, nebula, the same composition. Everything should therefore have pretty much the same composition. It should have started out the same. Ah.
3: Started out the same. But today it's ended up being different. And... The story for the elements in the isotopes may be fairly different. There are lots of ways to fractionate elements. All of geochemistry is involved in that. So if I make a terrestrial rock-like planet, it's made out of silicon and oxygen primarily. And in the process of making a planet that's a rock, I tend to leave behind hydrogen and helium. <clears throat> so you know, there's big changes in the chemical composition there.
2: The lighter elements tend not to be used.
3: Its volatility is the main criteria, but the more abundant lighter elements, more abundant volatile elements, are also the lighter ones.
0: Hmm.
3: Now, the, the situation with isotopes is very different. The processes by which you change the ratio of nitrogen fifteen and nitrogen fourteen are much more limited, and because it's much more limited, they may be more specific about why the change occurred. where you don't have, you know, you have. 150 different ways to change the ratio of hydrogen to oxygen, but you may only have two or three different ways to change the ratio of nitrogen-15 to nitrogen-14. So it should be much more diagnostic of what's happened.
2: It's more sensitive to specific physical right. environments.
3: On the other hand, the first-order assumption is nothing happened to the isotopes. But nitrogen, in terms of what's known in solar system materials, tells us that that's not true. And the same is true for oxygen, by the way. So there are these differences, which are basically not known as how they occurred. And the idea is, in this standard model, that the ele- both the elemental and the isotopic composition of the solar nebula is preserved for us today in the surface layers of the sun. Mm-hmm. The solar wind is the expansion of the surface layers of the sun out into space, continually flowing out. And to get a sample of solar matter, therefore all you have to do is put materials in the way of solar wind, capture the atoms and bring them back, and then try to recover the solar composition, or solar wind composition, from your uh, captured materials.
2: And that's the... That's what Genesis did. That's the, base, that's the basis of Genesis, isn't it? You want to try... Well, you make the assumption that the composition of the solar nebula is somehow... it, was, it exists... As, as we see on the surface of the sun, it's being blown off as the solar wind. Let's go get some. Exactly. <laughs> so that's basically the exactly. Genesis mission.
3: Now, we have to face the possibility that in extracting the solar wind from the sun, it changes composition. And that has happened to some degree, and that's that's an issue which we have to deal with. We're, we're in the middle of dealing with that right now.
2: Is that the issue that the solar wind, when it interacts with the collecting medium, actually changes or no, something no. else?
3: No, no, no. That, that's pretty minor. We know that, that's well-controlled. It's when the sun, it's in going from the sun to the solar wind, it's not exactly composition independent. Things happen to it. It right. changes. And to, to a lesser extent, things happen to the isotopes. Also,
2: they are also, as we say, fractionated. Can you describe that in a little bit more detail?
3: Yes. I mean, basically, l- let me talk about the solar physics. And I'm, remember, I'm not a solar physicist, so this is, this is my view of it. But I think I have it qualitatively correct. The outer surface layers of the sun are this churning mass of gas that you see in any of the spectacular images that are available of the solar surface and this this produces a fairly well mixed so called outer convection zone for the sun, but most of the material there is in the form of atoms, not the form of ions they they have the the atoms have the right number of electrons so they're overall neutral but as the material is ejected from the sun in stages from this convection zone into the solar corona, the bright outer envelope of the sun that's seen in the picture of the sun at a solar eclipse by the moon. The material is heated quite strongly, and then the material from the solar corona is gravitationally unbound and escapes as the solar wind. So then as the process as the material is heated and put up in the corona then the first stage, it becomes ionized. So it goes from a neutral atom to an ion by losing electrons. And elements that are difficult to ionize, helium being the best example, that tend not to be as effectively extracted from the convection zone of the sun up into the corona. And so then you get the elements left behind or fractionated which are hard to ionize, and so iron, which is very easy to ionize, gets extracted very efficiently, where helium is difficult to ionize, gets left behind, so the iron-to-helium ratio in the solar corona is now different. Then these ionized elements are then further heated and accelerated out of the solar corona, and that becomes a solar wind, and this is acceleration process of the ions that then produces, according to this coulomb drag theory, produces differences depending on the mass and so in this case the helium-3 isotope will be extracted more differently than the helium-4 isotope and so you will get uh, fractionation
2: this is different this is due to the differences in mass of the of the isotope this
3: i mean it involves both charge and mass and speed so the the, the equations are fairly complicated but they do depend on mass Mm. And so, indeed, in, in our experiments, we see differences in the helium-3, helium-4 ratio from the solar wind, that we, the high-speed solar wind that we collected separately from the low-speed solar wind. We see a well-defined 6% difference there that really uh, uh, has to be described as something like the coulomb drag. and in fact, the, the amount of fractionation and the direction of fractionation is in accord with uh, the coulomb drag theory.
2: So Genesis was designed to go out, collect bits of the solar wind, and then return. It's an exciting part of the mission. It was not just to go out there and analyze, it was go out and bring back.
3: We added the extra step, which is somewhat harder, but it was not in any way prohibitive from either the technical point of view or the cost point of view in our case, is to bring the material back to Earth to analyze. Once you have done that, then all kinds of wonderful things open up for you. Your ability to analyze, to do the analysis, is not limited by any of the restrictions you have on a spacecraft in terms of mass and power and, and this type of thing.
2: Of course, put, of course, putting packages onto a onto a space probe is expensive in that you've got to launch it there and power it, right. and they've all got to be incredibly robust. Yet, if you can bring the sample back to Earth, you've got labs across the planet That's that right. will and be pleased. So
3: every to it. one of our instruments weighs more than our spacecraft did. <laughs> Uh, mass spectrometers have big magnets on them, which tend to weigh a lot. We are using some instruments that, that are as big as the NASA centers themselves. Hmm. That are instruments that basically storage rings that generate X rays that, that are kilometers in size. Yes. So uh, you not put one of those, and- <laughs> no, no. See, so not only not only we have all these possibilities today. As something new is developed, we're ready to use it. We, we we match the material to the new technique.
2: It's an interesting point too because th- these missions that you design and then build, test, and then launch, they take decades oh, right. from conception through to building, through to launch, and then analysis. And and by the
3: time by the time you've launched it, you could have built something much, much better, but you know, you, you can't because it's already built and you're ready to go. And so yeah. you're, you're, you're schedule limited too. You can't can't change anything. It's just you know it is a big risk to, to do a lot of changes.
2: Describe how the Genesis probe collected bits of the solar wind.
3: Okay, the, the basic requirement is simple. We had to get far enough away from the Earth to escape the perturbations of the solar wind by the Earth's magnetic field. But there is a place called the L1 point, which is a, the point in space where the gravitational forces of the Earth and Sun are balanced. And since the Sun weighs much more, this place on this fulcrum is very close to the Earth. It's about a million kilometers away from the Earth. And it's a very stable point to put a spacecraft in because and it's very easy to get to. It's very cheap power-wise to get there. And so it's a, it is the favorite spot for any mission that studies the sun in any way or the other. And so we parked our spacecraft out there beside all the other ones that are out there. There are three or four out, out of them out there as we speak, studying various aspects of the sun and the solar wind. And uh, then when we got done, we we pulled away and wave goodbye to our friends there and then came home. And so all we did was get out there. Once we got out there, we um, settled down, we opened the cover of what we call the canister, and then we p- deployed these various materials and exposed them straight to the solar wind.
2: Mm. So particles of the solar wind would basically get trapped by this, the, that's these materials. Right.
3: We, we, we know a fair amount about the solar wind. We know it is a plasma, <clears throat> as it has a certain velocity. That when ions of this velocity hit material, uh, they basically uh, almost always stick. And uh, the cases where that might not be true, we sort of understood in advance, and so we were quite sure that if we stuck our materials in front of the solar wind, we would collect them. Mm-hmm. And since they're atoms, they are not dis- you cannot be destroyed by the stopping.
2: So you have what did you have? One set of uh, of collection material plates, or were the different experiments? We
3: had a variety of different experiments. The bulk of what we studied so far came on big what we call collector arrays. These were about a meter in diameter in which each array had a set of hexagonally shaped collectors of different materials and the different materials are selected for different experiments. We optimized the material to what we wanted to analyze. And then these were exposed to the solar wind and then there was a special set of them which was exposed to different kinds of solar wind. there are three different mechanisms by which solar wind is produced on the sun and accelerated out, and we collected separate samples of those. And to do that, we had uh, instruments built by Los Alamos that were measured the properties of the ions and electrons in the solar wind and identified the type of solar wind and then put out the appropriate array to do that. And that, that worked flawlessly during the course of the mission.
2: You mentioned there are three different types of solar wind. That, seem, that seems interesting to me because I always thought solar wind is just... Wind, yes, solar well, that, wind coming off the sun. Yeah,
3: it was, in fact, we had to learn that. Uh, uh, a very important influence in doing this was Marsha Neugebauer, who's one of the pioneers in, in, in solar wind studies from, from JPL. First thing we started talking to her about doing this, the first thing she said, it's not as easy as you think. To do it right, you have to get separate samples of these two different kinds of solar wind. She said, oh no, we don't want to do that. We don't want to do that. It makes it so much harder. You got to do it. You got to do it. So we did it. <laughs> And uh, it turned out to be very valuable.
2: Presumably, it's important though. I mean, if, oh, yeah, if there are three different types of solar wind, there must be. It's
3: important. It's important because it was sort of known from the spacecraft data that there were compositional differences among, say, just say the ratio of iron to helium in these different kinds of solar wind. And so, if there are compositional differences, we had to un- that was part of the picture that we had to understand. And it had the great advantage for us, even thinking from the planetary science goals of Genesis, which is what we want are the data on the solar composition, is that these different solar wind mechanisms started with the same reservoir of material. And then in the process of getting the solar wind, they changed it a little bit, but they changed it by different amounts. And we measured the change sample, and then we have to get help from our solar physics friends to make the corrections back. But we know that condition is we have to get back to the same answer. So we have a built-in quality control Hmm. that we are making these corrections properly. we make three different corrections to get back to the same answer. And if we don't get the same answer, we're not making the corrections right. So uh, this, from the quality point of view of the accuracy of the data, uh, is very important.
2: So you have a self-consistent experiment. You're able to check yourself to make sure that you're not...
3: We, we, we have a way of proving that the answer we get is the right answer.
2: Hmm. How long did Genesis collect uh, particles of the solar wind for? Uh, 27 oh. months,
3: which was pretty much the full-design full well, we had a requirement that we had to do it for at least two years, and, the, and then they worked out the details of the tra- trajectory and everything. Um, uh, it turned out that uh, we got a few extra months, which we happily accepted.
2: <laughs> right. Well, jump forward a few years, and Genesis has returned. You have samples now here on Earth uh, in laboratories around the planet with their the fantastic uh, experimental equipment. What are you learning?
3: Well, once, once we know solar composition... We can then start looking at the evolution of different materials, and we will. The easiest thing to start with are various kinds of meteorites, because they are basically one step removed from the solar nebula. Whereas, you know, in principle, I can take any rock from any place on Earth and work back through the whole history of the solar system from that mm-hmm. rock. That's in principle, in practice, it turns out to be very fairly hard to do. And so, the simplest thing to do is start with the meteoritic materials, and then look at the chemical differences. How did this happen? And so once we get a better idea of how these compositional changes were between the solar number and meteoric materials, then these meteoric materials were in turn the inputs to the various planetary materials, and we can sort of try to work our way along to bigger planets.
2: So you're starting with the meteors as the basic building blocks of planets. So if you understand those and their composition, then maybe we could have now, a crack now the planets. That's
3: a fairly general idea. There are more specific things involved, uh, the more specific. Um, comparisons that can be made. And let's let's go back again. We talked a little bit about the the isotopic composition of nitrogen emerition, nitrogen fifteen to fourteen. There our expectations were that the ratio, this isotopic ratio in the Earth's atmosphere was modified from what the solar nebula gave us. And that was modified because some of the Earth's atmosphere had been lost early in its history and the nitrogen fourteen would be lost more easily than a nitrogen-15. And so we expected then to see a nitrogen-15-14 ratio that was lower because it had more nitrogen-14 in the Sun than what we had in the Earth's atmosphere. The very first data, which are very preliminary, say that's not true. <laughs> it looks uh, a lot like the Earth, which is even more surprising because there, there are data for the atmosphere of Jupiter which say there that there is a lot less nitrogen 15 and 14 by a whopping 40%, which in the world of ice-topping variations, that's huge. And so we were expecting something um, down close to Jupiter. And that appears not to be true. So the Sun looks more like the Earth rather than Jupiter.
2: That's quite surprising, isn't it? Because we yeah, expect we, that the we, Sun we, should look more totally like That's totally
3: unanticipated, Jupiter. totally unanticipated. Now, that's very preliminary data. I hope we don't have it wrong, but we'll be able to verify it again. We have a, a result that's very interesting. It changes how you think about the solar system. But we're not stuck with that result for 10 years till we can mount some other kind of mission <clears throat> on the time scale of a year or so. We will be able to confirm that and by an in, in independent means because we have the samples back. Just, just an enormous advantage of the quality of the science you get by having things back on Earth to study.
2: So you've managed to overturn a large fraction of solar system evolution theory.
3: <laughs> would that be would that be fair to say? Uh, this this is the, yeah I don't know how though because we we've just known this this none for about a month and and so why this happened? Yes yes this this is a very surprising result. Yet the first order says that the outer solar system the planets in the outer solar system are very different than the inner solar system, and so it offers great opportunities maybe now to compare things that are seen in the Stardust mission, which brought back particles from a comet, which was an object formed from the Kuiper belt at 40 to 50 astronomical units from the sun. Mm. The thing is, the early results there, so that stuff looks like stuff in the inner solar system. In fact, some of it did probably come from the inner solar system and transport it out, but not all of it. Not all of it. There has to be things that represent outer solar system materials there, so we'll have an interesting time comparing what we found with what they found. But in general, our results say that uh, there are significant differences, at least in terms of composition from... um, what you have in the outer planets than what you have in the terrestrial planets.
2: I should point out that the differences that you're finding here between, uh, say, the Sun and Jupiter, the differences between the inner planetary system and the outer planetary system, that, that these differences are from a different physical uh, set of explanations, different set of physics than simply volatility of, right. of elements.
3: Right, that's because that's where the isotopes, exactly, that's where the isotopes come in. Um, the things that, you know, separate hydrogen and oxygen or hydrogen and silicon won't have big effects on the isotopes and so it's more easy to think that isotopic variations represent input materials we know that what comes out of stars is very isotopically heterogeneous and what you have to say is the mix of stellar materials from formed in stars before the solar system formed that end up in the outer planets is different than what we had in the inner planets no evidence before that that was the case
2: it's fascinating stuff. It has to be said that the Genesis mission didn't go completely to plan. It did return to Earth, but it returned to Earth in a, uh, I think, in your words, uh, not with many points for style. That's correct.
3: Um, yes, we uh, the reentry capsule crashed. <laughs> it hit the ground at two hundred miles an hour, which is twice as fast as what we expected. But anyway, in Everything everything, was crushed and smashed and broke up to varying degrees. On the other hand, um, the atoms are not destroyed by this crash. And uh, we went out and picked up the pieces as many as we could. And whereas we were expecting to have like 250 of these 10-centimeter hexagons, we now have 15,000 samples in a size range that we can use. There are a lot of things that were destroyed. We have significant losses. Nevertheless, there's a significant number of pieces that have survived. These are smaller than what we expected, and they have a certain amount of dirt on their surface. But uh, in principle, the dirt is on the surface. The solar wind is beneath the surface. When we clean off the dirt, we can measure the solar wind. And we have done that successfully so far in the in – the, but we have – you know, as we go into harder and harder things, that becomes a, that dirt becomes a major challenge.
2: The point being is that the solar wind would have embedded itself deep it did inside. Did embed the, its,
3: it? Did embed itself? I and mean, we have direct we have direct observations that showed it. it embedded itself pretty much where we expected it to be.
2: And the dirt is simply a surface the dirt contaminant. sitting on the surface. That's mm. right. You can easily just get well, relatively easily get rid of it.
3: In principle, ah. uh, <laughs> see the the, the things we have done to date have either been experiments which are not sensitive to the dirt. Measuring noble gases, for example, is, is pretty, pretty much insensitive to the dirt. Or cases where we can look clean spots between pieces of dirt. Or if we hit a piece of dirt, we can throw away one small set of analysis, and we've lost very little. Uh, we want to do experiments which in analyzing large areas on the samples, and their effective cleaning of this is a major challenge. We already know that. We already know that.
2: Presumably, though, the results that you get from what you believe to be a clean piece of sample if it differs wildly from you know, something which seems to be well, dirty or even if, it doesn't yeah, sure. seem to be dirty. And,
3: and this is what we'll do. But remember, there, <laughs> if we could measure it on a clean piece of sample, we wouldn't try to measure it on a dirty sense, piece of sample. So that there are things that to measure and require, you know, analyzing a large area that we want it to do. And um, we, will, we will know. So how, how will we know we got it clean? We'll know, know a couple of different ways. One is, again, we get reproducibility. One thing about dirt is it's not reproducible. It's very heterogeneous. So if we can reproduce our measurements in replicate measurements, we will have some confidence that we're not measuring dirt. Also, um, in these large area things, we can measure some of the same elements that we've been able to measure in small areas like magnesium and iron, and we, there we know the answer. And, uh, you know, the uh, if if the magnesium number is contaminated, then we won't believe everything else. And if the magnesium number is not contaminated, then we'll have some confidence in some element that we didn't know before. Hmm. So we know what to do in principle. It's just in practice. It's uh, taking a while. Hmm.
2: Is there anything that the Genesis mission set out to do which you will not be able to do because of uh, of, of the crash? We set
3: out a list of 19 different measurements that we wanted to do on a return solar wind sample. Some of these are now much more difficult. Others were not affected at all. But we, at this time, are not giving up any of the 19. We, uh, we have not thrown in a towel on any one of them yet. We are ch- we're seriously challenged. We may in the end lose a couple, but right now we're not ready to give up.
2: Nowhere near a disaster then
3: was not a recommended thing to have happen to you (laughs) on the other hand uh, it is what it is and, and we're moving on
0: yes and really good that all of that space dust has not been contaminated by utah mud
2: yes indeed it's quite easy to apparently quite easy to distinguish between utah mud and solar nebula
0: But that's still going to take quite a few years before we can get the final results.
2: Yes, indeed. Work is continuing um, at Caltech and a number of universities around the world analysing the results from the Genesis space probe.
0: So, from a NASA mission to a JAXA mission. We've been looking through our survey responses and we found a couple of things that people would quite like to include. One of those is to look at a picture and try and describe it so that you know what you're looking at.
1: The picture will be on the show notes for this show, the November Extra. So if you go along to the JODcast website, find the show notes
0: for this issue, and then you'll see what we're talking about. So what we're looking at is a picture of Earthrise from the moon.
1: We are. It's an update of the classic
2: Earthrise image taken by Apollo 8. Yes, so the Japanese space probe Kaguya, which uh, formerly was called Selene, took a photograph of the Earth um, just above the... Lunar limb, and it's a fantastic image showing lots of detail on the lunar surface as well as the Earth appearing in the background. An interesting thing you can note is that the moon is actually very
1: dark, and that's actually because the moon's a whole lot less reflective than the Earth. So, in the image, the Earth
2: looks very bright and the moon looks very dark. Hmm. This is a, a a phenomenon which is given a, a name, right? It's the albedo of, of a planetary or, yep. or, or any object, basically, but it's usually planets. And the albedo of the moon, even though we See it as being a very bright object in our own sky is, in general, quite low. Compared but to other objects, the albedo
0: objects. of something like Venus is very high because of its uh, because of its thick clouds. Mm. So it reflects a lot of light, uh, and that's why Venus is so bright in the skies.
2: So do go and check out the image taken by the Kaguya space probe. Uh, the links, as we say, are on the link section of our web page the picture will be too
0: if you would like us to keep going with this then please let us know via the website the address as ever is www.jodcast.net so we've uh, described one picture but now we can ask those difficult questions that only tim o'brien can answer over to you nick
2: It's time for Ask an Astronomer now with Dr. Tim O'Brien. So thank you very much again, Tim, for coming and answering questions. No problem. The first one is from Mike Van Vuren, and he says, How many solar systems do we have confirmed beyond our own? How many planets in total? How many on average in each solar system?
4: Right. Um, okay, so I think if ever I come to... I mean, of course, I should point out that you're the, you're the expert in this field. <laughs> so uh, uh, if I say anything that you feel needs uh, clarification, just just butt in. Uh, but uh, I think what I do when I'm asked this question, if I want to give an up-to-date answer, I obviously I go on the web. Yes, of course. There's and there's a couple of places I would look, um, which are there's a couple of websites, one from a, a European group and one from an American group. One of them is called exoplanet.eu, which you might guess is the European uh, group, and the other is exoplanets.org, and they both give sort of a different uh, picture, actually, of that. Their own interpretation of the state of play, I think, of the the sort of exoplanet uh, search or extrasolar planet search. Uh, I had a quick look at Mm -hmm. exoplanet.eu just recently, just to check up the current numbers, and the numbers there uh, were that there were two hundred and sixty-three planets known outside of our uh, solar system, and that the, uh, there were twenty six multiple planet systems, so that 's sort of you know basically that that answers the question in the sense that um, of those two hundred and sixty three planets it 's not like there 's twenty six multiple planet systems, therefore there 's ten planets each mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, in general, the vast majority have only got one planet yes. Um and of course you know th- I guess the point is that most of these planets are discovered by this doppler wobble thing that the, the star wobbles. Uh, it sort of orbits the center of mass, um, the same center of mass as the planet does, and so the, the, the star's wobbling backwards and forwards and that 's how we infer the existence of this orbiting planet um, that 's going to be more that 's going to be dominated by presumably say the most massive planet or depends how far away from the star it is as mm-hmm. well, so it tends to be biased towards these massive planets close to the parent star so you 're going to see the signature of of one planet generally I would say and then what happens is you keep you keep observing and observing looking for superimposed on that you might see additional wobbles that are due to these other, other planets so it's, that's been done for, for 26 uh, systems so far i have got more than one planet so we can't really answer the question how many there are on average because we're still searching. We we're still,
2: it's because our experiments are, are a little bit biased yeah. whatever experiment that you do to try and find extra planets are going to be biased one way or the other and it's quite difficult to try and disentangle that out so when you get a a basic question like the one we have here from mike it's quite difficult to actually give a precise answer but we're getting closer we understand our experiments better and better and we're able to take what we observe and convert that into well this is what we expect is actually out there in the universe Mm -hmm. the next part of this question is what is the average size of the planets found
4: yeah um and he's sort of, of course, what I just mentioned was the fact that most of these techniques are biased, going to be biased towards the bigger planets, right? So, uh, f- for example, this Doppler wobble thing, the bigger the planet is, the more effect it's going to have on the orbit of the star itself. So they do tend to be um, Jupiter-sized or bigger. And, of course, in that particular technique, um, generally, you're not sure what you get is a lower limit on the mass as well, because it depends on the inclination of the planet's orbit. Um, they could generally be, be more massive than what we get. So, yeah, gen- typically the are massive planets. Um, just having it, again, having a quick look at exoplanet.eu has a, quite a nice little facility where there's a sort of live feature allowing you to, uh, uh, to make histograms of planet mass. So basically it'll tell you how many planets there are between certain ranges of planet mass, mm-hmm. and it sort of breaks it down so you can look at the sort of frequency distribution of planets of different masses. Uh, and having a quick look at that, you can see that, if you look at the sort of smallest planets there is one planet down there that's sort of less than a percent of uh, Jupiter's mass. Um, but in fact, that's one of these that was one of the first discovered. In fact, which was I think 1992, if I remember rightly, um, which was uh, re- going around a pulsar. So it's looking at pulsar timing. So it's quite an unusual thing because, of course, the parent star has exploded in a supernova. Mm-hmm. Perhaps somewhat surprising that there's any planets left orbiting it at all. <laughs> maybe um, in terms of planets going around normal stars, then the, then the least the lowest mass one that's been found um, is, uh, is is Gliese five eight one C. Um, which is going around a star called Gliese 581, uh, and it's uh, about five times the mass of the Earth, which is about um, it's point zero one six the mass of Jupiter. That's amazingly small. Yep. Yeah, I mean, f- five times the mass of the Earth is a small planet. That's a small planet. We're interested in these things for reasons of how planets are formed, and you know, it obviously relates to how stars are formed as well, but of course there's, there's also the bigger question, I guess, of... Uh, Uh, the broader question of whether there's life out there somewhere and and maybe we're looking for planets like the Earth just in case somewhere out there there's some life on on one of those planets looking back at us through its telescopes
2: (laughs) (laughs) and the next part of uh, Mike's question is what is the smallest planet we think we could find from across these vast distances
4: well, um I mean I think they, I mean there's a number of different methods that are used. Um, we've mentioned this Doppler wobble thing one One of the other methods we haven't mentioned is 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 looking for transits, which is sort of where you look for uh, an eclipse as the, as the planet passes across the front of uh the star as it's orbiting around it um that's that's potential that's got the potential to to find quite small planets. There's also microlensing, which mm-hmm. you're aware of, the sort of gravitational lensing um, technique, which looks for the sort of magnification of a, of a background star as a star with a planet passes across the front. And again, that's got the potential to get down to quite small planets. I think in many of these cases, I mean, you could probably correct me if I'm wrong, but, but um, one of the things that limits us at the moment is, for example, is the, is the atmosphere. Uh, and so I think a lot of these techniques are going to be vastly improved when we when, when the space-based missions start sort of coming to fruition. Really, mm-hmm. uh, I don't know whether that fits with your understanding. Uh, yes, of no, I think
2: that, I think that's true. And in the case of the, the last planet that we mentioned, this Gliese five eight one C, that is uh, going around a star which is relatively close to us, so it's in our general local neighbourhood, mm-hmm. uh, and um, the Some of the other techniques, in particular the one which I work on, which is the gravitational microlensing technique, found a similar mass planet, five and a half Earth mass planet in this case, but that was going around a star which was many thousands of light years away. Mm -hmm. Uh, So it really depends on the technique that you use, but it is still possible to find these very low mass planets Thousands of light years away, not just confined to our local neighbourhood mm. of stars. Mm. So it's basically just a matter of time. Mm. Yes, a matter of we're we're going to find them. They are there. They are there. We're going to yeah. find them. Yeah. They are there. We just need to get better, improve mm. the telescopes, improve our analysis, and we are going to find uh, Earth mass planets. Mm. Brilliant. Next question comes from William Blutenfeld, and his question is: If I went straight up from Earth and I could keep going and going and going, where do I go? So I guess ultimately it is about if we kept going how far do we go or does space just keep going and going
4: with no boundaries? Ah, okay. So a classic question, I think. Um it's basically to reword it again, um is space uh, is the universe um finite or infinite? Mm-hmm. Does um, it have walls? Yeah, does it go on does it go on forever or not? And uh, and I think if, if we sort of cut to the chase, we can probably give you the answer now. Um, we don't know. <laughs> um, we, don't, we don't actually know yet whether the universe is finite or infinite. I guess one of the first things to say is, um, is of course, that the bit of the universe that we can see is finite. So we call that the observable universe. Um, and the reason is because uh, the light that we're sort of collecting from these distant um, galaxies, these distant objects... Um, has been has been travelling for a limited amount of time. It's actually been travelling since, you know, if you're talking about a finite object like a star or a galaxy, it's been travelling since that thing formed, and if you sort of think in more general terms, the light's been travelling since the Big Bang. So, so in that sense, it can only have traveled a certain distance. And so you can sort of imagine yourself sitting at a certain point and looking out at the universe around you. And you can imagine a sort of bubble of, of space around you, which is, lit, which is lit up, you know, which is sort of, which the light has actually managed to get to you from. Mm. So that's the observable universe. And that clearly is finite because, because, you know, with the universe, the Big Bang was about 14 billion years ago. And so, so that, that part of the question is true. The question, that's sometimes what we call the horizon the sort of the observable part of the universe the question is how much beyond the horizon does the universe go um and clearly we can't see it so this is the problem (laughs) yes (laughs) so it's the we it's not going to be the universe isn't is going to be bigger than the observable universe it's bound to be bigger than the observable universe um by but by what factor um now uh i mean one of the things it may it may be that we'll, we'll always find that Question very hard to answer. Actually, it may be that we won't, we won't find the answer to that question. I suspect, but it can also be that, for example, if the universe is is finite, and you have to think how might the universe be finite? Um, we don't tend to think about it as there being something uh, outside of, of of the universe in the sense that people often think about the Big Bang sort of expanding out into something. Mm. We don't, you know, tend to think that way uh, in general. Um, but um, what we what we would imagine doing is you can imagine doing something like, you know, in what geometry could the universe be finite? Well, if you think about something like a uh, a torus, I mean, I don't know, you know, like a donut? I like a donut, yep. Yeah. So you've basically got a sort of, you know, a thing with a hole in the middle and you sort of live on the surface of it. It's possible to make one of those things. You could take a sort of sheet of paper, roll it up into a cylinder or something and then connect the two ends of the cylinder together and you've got a torus. Mm-hmm. Now maybe that's a sort of finite, a finite universe. Um and if you sort of imagine if we lived in some geometry like that then one of the things about that is that it's it's quite complicated and there's sort of multiple paths along which light could travel for example the you, you might see the signature of that geometry in something like the microwave background radiation from the mm-hmm. big bang because light's traveling along these complex paths through the universe so it's I hard know. to think about um space as being as having
2: some kind of shape some kind of yeah. geometry because um, we're we're sort of 3d creatures living in this 3D universe mm. and you think that, well, I mean, if I get up and walk out of this room, I end up somewhere else. And if I keep on going, then I'll keep on going I'll end up mm. somewhere else further away still. Mm. However, if I you know, get my directions co- completely correct and I start walking out of this office, I, I should end up walking back into it again, yeah, if, even if I keep right. on going in the same direction. Yeah. So I guess that's, that's part of the question yeah, that uh, William's asking is, you know, is that
4: similar for the universe? If I start going in one direction, mm.
2: what happens to me? Mm.
4: Mm. Well, we know. I mean, as I say, we know, we know that if you know, out to the observable universe, out to the horizon that we can currently see to, then yeah, that, you know, you would keep going mm. in, in those terms. But it's sort of uh, beyond that. We just don't know at the moment. It's just, it's, and it may be that we'll never know. I mean, there are there are interesting theories abounding about the you know whether the universe is part of some sort of multiverse or something, or whether there's you know it's part of some grander sort of system of uh, of universes, if you like. And again. You know, I would say at the moment that's you know it's very, it's very interesting stuff. And what you've got to do is look for an observable signature of it. Really, I mean, you know, it's in the realm of theoretical physics to to explore those areas. But if we can find it, if we can find a prediction from one of those theories that we can test with an observation, then that truly is is exciting at that point. Yeah. So I the answer, answer to... is
2: we don't know, but we're working on it. Yep, that's right. All right. Well, thank you very much indeed, Tim, for asking those questions. Everybody, please do keep your questions coming in. You can submit your questions to Tim at the Jodcast webpage, www.jodcast.net.
0: Thanks, Nick and Tim. And I'm afraid that brings us to the end of this edition of the Jodcast. Have no fear, though. We will be back at the beginning of December with a Cassini special.
2: Yes, indeed. We're talking to two of the world's top astronomers who have been involved in the cassini huygens mission to Saturn. So it's going to be a great show. Do please download the next show.
0: So uh, thanks then to Tim O'Brien for answering the questions and, of course, to Professor Don Burnett of the University of California, Berkeley, for speaking to us. And everyone, indeed, who has responded to the survey and who has sent us feedback uh, on from our website. And if you do have any other links or pictures or anything that you want to send us, please do, because we love hearing from you. But that's it now until the beginning of December. So until then, take care.
2: Bye. Bye, everyone.
0: So I asked you before the show if the entire landmass of the earth was to be divided among its inhabitants, how much would people get? And then, if the entire arable landmass of the earth was divided among its inhabitants, then how much would everyone get? Well, doing all of the sums, it appears that you would get about five acres of land for all of the landmass of the planet, but only just about one acre for all of the arable land. So everyone can be a farmer, not just steward. See you next month.